Ephesians chapter 4 is where we're at this week. Ephesians 4 verses 11 through 16. Normally at Harbin's, uh, most of you guys know this, but we do have some visitors here today. Normally at Harbin's we preach expositionally, verse by verse, through books of the Bible. Matter of fact, we just finished the first phase of our preaching through the book of Genesis. Uh, and we're starting next week uh, in the book of Galatians. We're shifting back to the New Testament. And next week we'll begin a, an expositional verse-by-verse walk through the book of Galatians. And we'll be there uh, at least a couple of months. But occasionally we do preach a message on a specific topic. Um, but even when we do that, and we, we break away to do a topical sermon, uh, we, we preach that message still expositionally, meaning we, we preach from a passage of Scripture that speaks to that topic. So last week we preached on the importance of the sanctity of human life in the church and, and how we are to, um, to proclaim the sanctity of human life in our culture, and we preached from 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 5. Well, today again we're preaching on a specific topic because at the beginning of each year, I like to preach a message that reminds us of who we are as a church. That reminds us of what our DNA is at Harbin's. So for that purpose today, we're going to be preaching from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. So if you have your Bible this morning, I'd like for you to have it open. And be reading along with us as we look at that passage of scripture here in a little bit. But while you're finding the passage, let me just ask the, the, some of the kids in here a, a question. And what, what is this, these big pieces of paper that I'm, I'm holding in, in my hands here? What do, you, what do you think this is? Huh? It's paper. Yes. What, it, what is this paper? Do you have any idea what this, these big papers are? What? A blueprint. Yes, this is an architectural blueprint. Okay, and so this has plant, a blueprint. Thank you. Thomas has got it now. Okay, a blueprint. And, and now, what's the purpose of a blueprint, kids? Okay, right here. Parker? For making stuff, right? Making stuff. What do you think this is the blueprints for? Anyone? Let's see here, Mr. Rowan. A house. A house. Nope, Rowan's not right. It's not, not a house. Uh, Vera? The What? To make a church, okay? You're right. These are the blueprints to make a church. Anyone have an idea the blueprints for, to make what church? Let's just say a church building. What, what church do you think these are the blueprints of? Right here. Yes. These are the architectural blueprints, some of them at least, and I got a few pages of it here, for the building of this church building. And, and when you look at these things, these, these blueprints, they can be pretty complicated. Um, some of them are for the electrical layout of the church building. Some of them might be for the, the plumbing layout of the church building. And, and some of it just has um, uh, different aspects of, uh, has the room numbers named or, or the rooms n- numbered and all that kind of stuff. So the, the architectural blueprint here uh, can be pretty, pretty complicated. Now when I think about what we have right there, those are the, that's the plans, that's the pattern, that's the blueprint for building a physical church building. But you know what? There's also a lot of people out there today, a lot of ideas out there today regarding how to build the church spiritually. So now I'm not talking about the physical building. I'm talking about the, the church, the people, spiritually. Um, in my hands here, I had blueprints for building a physical building. And 
There are countless books out there, literally thousands of church growth books and pastoral leadership books that you can purchase that will give you a plan, that will give you a blueprint, that will give you a pattern for growing a church or for structuring a church. There are plenty of church growth books and materials out there. Matter of fact, as a pastor, it can be a bit dizzying sometimes to try to keep track of the, of the latest and greatest church growth gurus and popular pastors who will tell you how to structure your church so that it will grow. So with so much out there, with so many different blueprints out there, one is left asking, well, well what's the best plan? What's the right way to, to structure a church? What's the golden ticket for growing a healthy church? Matter of fact, what does it even mean to grow a healthy church? What's the framework? What kind of organizational system needs to be in place? And what type of leadership does a church need, a good church? Um, what type of pastor, a visionary, a creative genius, a good communicator, a strong man, a planner, a programmer, a project manager? All of these questions are, are really questions of what we call ecclesiology. Ecclesiology simply means our theology regarding the nature and the structure of God's church. So where do we get our ecclesiology? Where's our blueprint? Well, guess what, friends? God has not left us trying to figure things out on our own. Nor has he left his people standing on the flimsy foundation of man's collective wisdom. God has given us his blueprint, his pattern, and it's in today's text. So I want us to look at it together. Ephesians chapter 4, 11 through 16. And please stand now as we read the passage of Scripture we're going to preach from today. At Harbin's, we stand in the honor of reading God's Word because we believe that this Word that we are reading right now, that we hold in our hands, and what a precious gift that is, friends. You know, one of the reasons I want us to come to church with our Bibles is because it's a precious gift. I was just talking with my uh, community, not my community group, but one of my discipleship groups this week, and we just take for granted this book that we have in our hands. I was reminded of a, of one of the reformers who was burned at the stake because he translated the Lord's Prayer into English for his children. That's how far people were kept from the Word at one time. And yet we are here and we, we have hundreds of Bibles sitting in our houses. So let's praise God for this book that we have. This is the infallible, inerrant, and absolutely sufficient Word of God. So Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 begins like this. And he gave the apostles... The prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we don't have to go shop the Lifeway Christian bookstore to find your blueprint for the church. 
Lord, we thank you that your word, the scriptures, are clear. They are sufficient. You have given us what we need. And so we praise you for that. The problem isn't with your ability to communicate to us, Father. The problem is with our ability to receive it, and believe it, and rest on it. And so God, this morning, just like we do with every sermon here at Harbin, as we come pleading to you right now, before we get into the exposition of the word, we're asking you to open up our ears. Without the Holy Spirit doing a divine work of opening up ears to hear, we cannot receive the word. And Lord, open up my mouth. Enable my tongue to speak your word this morning. And if there be any exposition of your word, any explanation of your word that isn't in line with your word, I pray that you'd shut my mouth. Keep me from speaking it. And so, Lord, guide our time now. Lord, we ask that you cleanse our hearts. Make us people ready to receive your beautiful word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. This text is rather simple. Rather simple, rather straightforward. I like simple instructions. I don't know about you guys, but when I open up a product, um, I want the instructions to be really, really simple. A lot of times you open up a product that was made overseas, and not only are the instructions not simple, they actually are absolutely nonsensical. They, they make no sense. You know, they, they ran their instructions through Google Translate and then packaged it with the material and sent it to you, and you're going, this, doesn't, this just doesn't work. So that's why I like Ikea products, right? How many of you here like Ikea stuff? Because it comes with instructions, and the instructions are massively simple. Matter of fact, there's no words, okay? And it's just pictures of some very simple little person and, they, and, and what they're doing, and there's about four or five steps to whatever product you buy, and it's just, okay, it's really that simple. So I, I'm a kind of person, I'm a simple guy. I like simple instructions, and what we have here is a simple plan a simple, simple instruction from God, a simple pattern, a simple blueprint that God has given, an ecclesiological structure that didn't take 500 pages of a book to write about, or a series of articles and blog posts. It took six verses, six verses. And right off the bat, I want you to notice something about God's instructions for the church given here through the Apostle Paul. Right off the bat, the language I want you to notice is that this is not organizational language, it's organic language. There's a big difference there. And that's very important. This text has been in the past, for me as a pastor, but for our church, this text has been foundational. And it continues to be foundational. I'm certain it will continue into the future to be foundational regarding the way we do ministry here at Harbin. So I want to preach to you this morning about what this text means to us. What it means to Harbin's corporately. And the very first thing I want you to see this morning is that God gave to Harbin's the ministry of the word. God gave to Harbin's the ministry of the word. God gave to Harbin's the ministry of the word. Verse 11 says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. He gave. Who gave? What what is this text about? Who gave what? Well, Christ Jesus gave to the church. The context here is that after the first three chapters of, of, of the book of Ephesians, in which G- Paul expounds some very deep theology, 
Dima read some of that to us earlier. Very deep theology about the nature of the church, the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of the inclusion of the Gentiles into the people of God. It's, it's beautiful. After those first three chapters of deep theology, Paul then shifts to application of that theology in chapter 4. He does that in all of his epistles. Theology, then application. So we have in chapter 4 the beginning of the application of the theology. And at the very beginning of chapter 4, what we're reading about is Paul is calling for the church to be unified. You can read that for yourself in verses 1 through 6. And then in verses 7 through 10, Paul begins to explain how it is that God, in his providence, facilitates church unity. And what we see is that he facilitates church unity by giving gifts to the church. What we see in those verses is that our ascended and victorious Lord Jesus Christ exercises his dominion over all things by supplying his people, the church, by supplying his people with all they need to do his will. And he supplies the church by giving them gifts. And so what we have here in today's text starting in verse 11, is the description of those gifts and the purpose of the gifts. Now, in other passages of Scripture, we also read of Jesus' gifts to the church. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 4.10 teaches us that each person in the church has received a gift and is to use it for one another, to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. And then... In Romans chapter 12, verse 6, the Apostle Paul himself there speaks of us having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. And in that passage there in Romans, he then proceeds to lift out, list out several different spiritual gifts. And then we also have in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 and following, in that passage, Paul also lists a bunch of different spiritual gifts and we see in that passage, just like today's passage, that the, gifted, the giftedness of the church, the gifting to the church, is designed to make the church unified. Verse 7 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says this, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. But the difference with today's text, the difference in today's text from those other texts, is that Paul has, isn't focusing so much in today's text on the grace-given abilities or talents distributed by the Spirit. But rather here Paul focuses on the people themselves. The gifts are the people in today's text. Look at it again, verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers. He didn't just give the gift of teaching. He didn't just give the gift of shepherding, the gift of evangelism. He gave the people. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. So let's examine this a little bit closer. The first thing we notice that Christ is that Christ gave the apostles. That word apostle simply means one sent as a messenger. But in the New Testament, as most of you here probably know, the office and ministry of the apostles, capital A apostles, and the prophets for that matter, was a foundational ministry. Foundational to the church and to its doctrine. We see this in the very epistle of Ephesians itself. If you flip back to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, this is part of the passage Dima read earlier. You read this where Paul says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And then in chapter 3, verse 4 and following, we see that the only way the church could comprehend the mysteries of the gospel was through the work of the apostles and the prophets. Verse 4. 
When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So the Galatian church, like the very first church that we read of in the book of Acts, was devoted to the apostles' teaching, because the apostles' teaching was the foundation of everything they believed in. It was the foundation of the church. Now, who were the apostles? They consisted of the 11 disciples of Jesus, that is, the, the 12 minus Judas, and then also the apostle Paul, who was made an apostle by Christ on the road to Damascus. An apostle had to be one who had witnessed the risen Christ and who was personally appointed by and supernaturally gifted by Jesus himself with miraculous power and revelation to carry on his teaching and thereby establish the church. And the apostolic office, by the very nature of the office itself, ceased to exist when those men died. The church was established And the apostolic word was established and the office was needed no more. But, and this is very important, the apostolic word continues. Not in new revelations from the mouths of men. There are no more apostles today. No matter how many billboards on your way to Atlanta will tell you there's a bunch of apostles still out there. There are no more apostles today, but the apostolic word continues so long as the New Testament scriptures are exposited. That is the apostolic word. And we know that even the Old Testament, it all points to Christ. So as the scriptures are preached, the apostles' teachings continue. And so the apostles continue to be the foundation to our church and to our doctrine The church today is still under the authority of and dependent upon the foundational teachings of the apostles. Now the New Testament prophets that are also mentioned in today's text apparently work alongside the apostles giving authoritative revelation to the people. Most likely it it wasn't always foretelling, like telling the future. It was probably more so forthtelling, authoritative exhortation of God's truths to the people. There are no longer prophets today giving authoritative utterances straight from God. Again, once the authoritative apostolic word was set for us in the canon of the scriptures, the prophetic office, just like the apostolic office, was no longer needed. But today, men authoritatively teach and exhort God's people from this book. So in that sense, there is still a prophetic word going forth. So long as men are authoritatively proclaiming the word of God, that is a prophetic utterance. Not a direct revelation from God, but an exposition of what God has already revealed right here in the Scriptures. So let me remind you, Harbin, by, by way of a question. When we think about the apostolic and the prophetic office no longer being needed, let me ask you a question. What is the purpose of revelation? What's the purpose of the Scriptures? You, y'all can answer. If you don't know, then, then we're going to start this whole sermon over again. What's the purpose of the Scriptures? To do what? To give us moral codes to, to obey? What are the purpose of the scriptures, Harvest? Don't be scared. I'm going I'm to call on Thomas here in a second. To reveal God and to point us to who? Jesus Christ alone. In other words, the purpose of revelation is redemption. This is the record of redemptive 
history. So here's the thing. Once redemption was accomplished, revelation ceased. Revelation and redemption go hand in hand. And redemption was accomplished through Christ and then the establishment of his church. And there was no longer need for any more to be written about the, about the redemptive story. Because it all found its yes and amen in one person, Jesus Christ. And so that's why we believe that no longer, there's no longer any need of, of new revelations. When you hear men standing up or women standing up proclaiming they have heard a new revelation from God, you need to plug your ears and run the other way. What we have here in the revealed word of God is all we need. It is our foundation. So with the apostles and the prophets, we have the foundational ministry of the word. So God gave to Harvest a ministry of the word. This is the foundational ministry of the word. And, and we do have to a degree, um, so long as it's, as it's tethered to the foundation, a continual ministry of the word. And we see that in the next people that are mentioned. The evangelists, the shepherds. And the teachers. So there's the foundational ministry of the word, the, the apostles and prophets, and then there's the continual proclamation of that foundational word, the continual ministry of the word through the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. The evangelists were those who were gifted at taking the gospel to places where it needed to be heard and heralded. Those gifted at taking the gospel to the lost, Acts 21, verse 8, is the only place that we see in Scripture someone actually called an evangelist, and that was Philip. Philip was an evangelist. But Paul does charge young Timothy in part of, as part of his pastoral work to do the work of the evangelist in 2 Timothy 4 or 5. So the evangelists were given to take the apostolic word to those outside the church and bring in God's lost sheep. But the next two gifts we see is the flip side of that. Those given, to Christ, given by Christ to the church to proclaim the apostolic word in the church. And thus edify the people, the shepherds and the teachers. Now, in that phrase there, the shepherds and the teachers, they, those are grammatically connected together in the Greek. And so some think this might be referring to just one person, one office, sort of a shepherd teacher. But I think, if you're studying this this week, that there are two different offices represented here. But I do think that Paul wants us to see how closely connected they are, and, and I shouldn't really call them offices, just two different roles in the church. And I want us to see how closely connected they are. I think that's what Paul wants us to, to see by the way he, he bound, binds them together in, in the language here. And they are connected in this way. The shepherds, and this is referring to pastors, elders, overseers, which are all the same thing. The shepherds, and the word pastor simply means shepherd. The shepherds must also be teachers. Matter of fact, that's going to be the primary responsibility of the shepherds, is to be a teacher. All shepherds are teachers, but not all teachers are shepherds. So there are shepherds and teachers in the church. They are connected, but they can also be separate works or separate jobs in the church. Now notice there are shepherds, plural. This text, combined with many other passages of Scripture, make it, a very, make it very clear that the church should have a multiplicity of shepherds, a multiplicity of pastors, of elders, of overseers. That's the way it is structured. Now, what is it that the shepherds, plural, do? Well, there's three G's, all right? This has nothing to do with the G3 conference that we went to, but there's three G's here. They guide the flock. There's the first G. Uh, they guide the flock to graze on the truth. That's the second G. While guarding the flock from wolves. 
So they, they guide the flock to a place where the flock can graze while they guard the flock from those who want to destroy the flock, which includes guarding the flock from false teaching and error. And the pastors are not apostles. They need guiding and guarding and grazing too. That's one of the many reasons for us to have a multiplicity of pastors in the church. Is that I need to be fed. I need to grow. I need to sit under some authoritative preaching of the word. So as I said uh, earlier, that part of the role of the pastor, of the shepherd, is that he must be able to teach. All pastors do are able to teach, as 1 Timothy 3, 2 commands. But they should not be people who come up with their own teaching, but instead be men who hold fast to the apostolic foundational teaching that's already been established. Titus 1, 9. Listen to this. This is talking about elders. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Be careful, friends, with creative pastors. Creativity is a gift from God and can be used in ministry so long as it is subservient to the word of God. But if creativity leads one who claims to be a pastor to supplement God's word or worse, to supplant God's word with his own ideas and agenda, then that flock is in serious danger. Error is not far behind. This is another reason why I believe that the single senior pastor model where there's only one main pastor, I think it's wrong. I think it's dangerous. According to Hebrews 13 verse 17, elders will have to give an account for the souls that are under their charge. That's a scary verse. And I'm glad that we have another elder here, another pastor here, and we are aiming to add even more elders, lay elders to this church body because we desperately need accountability within the eldership. That's the way God structured it. Paul, speaking to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, so not in the book of Ephesians, but in Acts chapter 20, he's also speaking to the Ephesians. But in that case, he's passing through, he's heading to Jerusalem, he's heading to the time when he's about to be turned over to the Romans. And on his way through Ephesus, he meets with the Ephesian elders and he says this, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And then he warned just a little bit later that from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So as we said earlier, every pastor is a teacher. Every pastor must hold fast to the word of God. But not every teacher is a pastor. Matter of fact, there are other teachers that... Christ gives as gifts to the church. But even those teachers will also be judged by God for how accurately their word aligns to the once for all apostolic word of God. That's why James chapter 3 verse 1 warns us and it says this. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. I know because I've been there before. A lot of churches just look are so desperate for teachers of whatever type. Children, adults, and who, who wants to teach? And we forget that James chapter 3 doesn't really allow us just to take a, a willy-nilly view of teaching like that. Instead, we should say, you know, there's teaching opportunities in the church, but wait. Be warned, because the scriptures make it very, very clear that if you teach the word of God in any context in the church, you will be judged more strictly. So... 
In today's text, we see how the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers are indeed gifts from God. Calvin said this, To Christ we owe it that we have ministers of the gospel. The ministers of the gospel that the Lord has placed in your life, friends, are a gift from God to you. Now, I know sometimes you may look at me and you think, well, I, I just don't know. I, I kind of want to go return to sender or go back to Walmart, see if I can exchange this gift for, you know, maybe a little better model. But the fact of the matter is, the pastors, those who have been placed over you, according to the scriptures, are a gift to the church. Now, why is that important? Because in our day and age of celebrity, the cult of celebrity has infected the church culture as well. And I am very glad that at the click of a mouse, you can have access to some of the best preachers and pastors and evangelists across this nation and even across this globe. But they are not the pastors God gave to you. God didn't give to you John MacArthur. God didn't give to you Paul Washer. God didn't give to you John Calvin. God gave to you, I know this is as awful as it sounds. He gave to you me and Deemer and evangelists like Peter. Chike is a gift from God to our church. The different teachers. That God gave gifts to the church. He didn't just give abilities. He gave people. And we should praise him for it and thank him for it instead of going and finding, going to click of a mouse, someone that we like a little bit better, maybe even someone that will get my preacher straight. If you just line up with this guy, it will be a whole lot better at our church. Be careful, friends. And be careful, pastors, as well. 1 Peter 5, 2. It tells the elders whom Peter is writing to. He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. That's why as, as glad as I get that perhaps other people outside of our church are listening to our podcast, which they are, that makes me happy, or maybe reading Deemer's blogs that he does and stuff like that, that's great, but that really doesn't get me all that jazzed. All that does is feed my sinful pride. What gets me jazzed is when people from this body come and say, the word of God spoke to me today through your ministry. I am to shepherd the flock of God among me. Right here, this is where... I shepherd, and it gives me great joy to do it. And so all the teachers, the evangelists, and the pastors, along with the apostolic word, are God's gift to the church. So we Harbins, we have been given the gift of the ministry of the word, the foundational ministry of the word, and the continual ministry of the word. And why? Why have we been given such a glorious gift of the ministry of the word. We've been given it so that we might do the work of the ministry. Now, as you can already see, because it's already up there, there's the blanks. We've been given the ministry of the word so that Harbins might do the work of the ministry. Pastors, evangelists, teachers exist to equip the saints. The word equip in the Greek could also be translated to perfect or to make complete or to establish. It carries the idea of giving someone all that they need to get the job done. So go back to our illustration about this building. There were the plans that were laid out, and then money was given. 
and materials were purchased, and people were hired. Everything that was needed in order to build this building was supplied to the builders. And that's what's happening when the evangelists and the teachers and the pastors do their job. They supply the church with everything you need to build, to build the body of Christ. So as the ministry of Christ's word increases and prevails in the church, Christ makes the church ready to do the bulk, the, the vast majority of the ministry. Listen, friends, the bulk of the ministry in any church, including Harbin's, belongs not to the pastors, but to the saints. Let me say that again. The bulk of the ministry in any church, including Harbin's, does not belong to the pastors, but to the saints. Belongs to you, the ministry, Harbin's. My main job, Deemer's main job, isn't to vision cast or organize or administrate or to inspire or to be the church CEO. No, our main job is to teach God's word and do so accurately and do so authoritatively. That's our job. And that's what we will spend the bulk of our time doing in a variety of different ways. Sometimes in, in very small groups with, with other men, like what happened on Saturday as we sat here and we just thought about some different scriptures and we went through a book together. Sometimes in a preaching context like this, sometimes in a community group, but the main task of your pastors is to simply feed you the word so that you can then go and do a myriad of different types of ministries. That's the structure. Why do so many in our culture desire something other than that from their pastors? Why do so many churches opt for a CEO who implements strategic visions for the sheep instead of a true pastor who feeds the sheep? Why have unbiblical models of church leadership so infected the American church? There can be lots of reasons. Let me just give you a few that just popped into my head as I was preparing this. Biblical illiteracy is that people simply don't know what the Bible teaches about ecclesiology. They simply have no idea. Or a low view of God's word itself. People simply don't think they need this. It's not that important to teach this. Give me something to pump me up and just get me along my day so I can have a good week. Or maybe people understand the importance of God's word, but pride... Pride surfaces up, and we just don't think we need that. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm mature. I don't necessarily need that. I need my pastor to do something more than just teach. But the primary ministry given to the elders, the pastors, and even in this case, as we read here, of the other teachers and the evangelists, is to feed the sheep. So relatively speaking, there will be few ministries that your pastor, your pastors, will own or be directly in charge of. Really few. There will be very few ministries that Deemer or I will be directly involved in and, and, and be in charge of. Acts, I'm reminded of Acts chapter 6. Pastors must do as the apostles did in Acts chapter 6. It says this, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, Listen to this. It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, 
Pick out from among yourselves seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. But we, listen again, verse 4 of chapter 6 of Acts, we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. And so we read that the church did exactly what the apostles told them to do. They chose some men. They set them apart to lead in the service work of the body. And then listen to what we read at the end of Acts chapter 6, at the end of that section there in Acts chapter 6, verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Ah, the church grows when the church Leaders appointed by God are allowed to focus on the ministry of the word. That's the church growth that makes God happy. Most church growth, I hate that word. To me it sounds like cancer. You cut off growths, right? Most church growth that you read about at Lifeway Christian Bookstore has nothing to do with that. John MacArthur tells the story that when he first went to Grace Community Church in 1969, the church he still pastors to this day, when he first got there, they asked him, the leadership of the church asked him what his vision was, what he felt like the direction of the church should be, what he wanted to do first. And this is what he said. I love this. Well, this is what I'm thinking. So this is MacArthur's words now. This is what I'm thinking. I could just commit myself to equipping the saints. In other words just to ministering the word to build up the saints. Then I believe I won't have to do anything else because everything else would just happen. If you, and this is what he said, if you will allow me the privilege of spending 30 to 35 hours each week in studying the word of God so that I can teach people, I really believe that they can be matured and perfected and fully equipped and brought to a place of adulthood spiritually and then they will do the work of the ministry themselves and the church will be built up. I agree with that 100%. J.D. Greer said in one of his books, sort of tongue-in-cheek, that when he entered the pastorate, he left the ministry. What he was referring to is that the ministry itself was happening in the body. His main job was just to simply preach and teach. So Harbins, your pastors will devote themselves to teaching you the whole counsel of God. And that ministry of the word will be made manifested in a variety of word-driven ministries such as the pulpit ministry I mentioned earlier and other things like community groups and training and counseling is a word-driven ministry and discipleship. And so pastors who are faithful to the ministry of the word are the ones that Paul calls good pastors, 1 Timothy 4, 6. If you put these things, speaking about the, the, the gospel and the doctrine, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. This is the opposite of what the world tells us about leadership. It's the opposite of what, like I said earlier, many of the church growth gurus tell us about leadership. This is organic, not organizational. The word is taught, and it it falls like a seed into hearts that have been tilled up and watered with good preaching and good teaching. And then ministry sprouts up. Fruit is produced. It's the word of God growing and prevailing in each person, thereby equipping them for ministry. It's what we call sanctification. And how did Jesus say that a believer is sanctified? Jesus himself said in John 17, verse 17, if you know the verse, say it with me. Sanctify them in the truth. What? Your word is truth. How do believers grow? They grow to the degree to which they're under good preaching and teaching of the word. 
Woe to the shepherd who does not feed the sheep. Ministers of the word still do other ministry, but their primary work is feeding the sheep so the church might be well and do well. Do well by doing the work of the ministry. It's the church's job to take what you've heard and been taught and then put it into practice through all sorts of gospel-centered ministries. There should be a lot of ministry in the church that the pastors aren't even involved in. There should be a lot of ministry in the church perhaps that the pastor's not even aware of. Because it's simply happening from the ground up. It doesn't come from the top down. This is, this is, the scriptures are always like this. It takes what we think wisdom, man's wisdom, and flips it on its head. Remember, the world is sinful and depraved and is flying upside down. And every time the world thinks it's pulling up, it's actually driving itself into the ground. So it's the same thing with leadership. True biblical leadership is leadership that, that waters people with the word and then from the ground up, ministry is produced. This is biblical ecclesiology. There are some things that pastors will be directly involved in. There are some things that pastors will be less involved in. And there will be some things that pastors can simply, all they can do is just pray for you about. But the bulk of the ministry will be sustained by the laity. And the ministry opportunities are endless. If we just open our eyes and ask God to show us and allow God to use us. And if our ministry desire is focused on others, not just ourselves. Then there are endless opportunities right here in this room. Endless opportunities to do the work of the ministry. Philippians 2 verse 3 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. But I want you to consider another aspect of your ministry. Your ministry. Your arena of ministry. Namely, your profession. The career God has given to you. This is the 500th year of the Protestant Reformation, and we must remember that The Reformation wasn't only about the doctrines of grace being recovered, but also about other lost doctrines being recovered as well, such as good teaching regarding the biblical theology of work. Luther and others believed and taught that each person's vocation is his ministry. Matter of fact, the word vocation actually literally means calling. Your vocation, your career is your calling. The Catholic Church had taught that there was only a special class of people, the clergy, who really worked for God and everyone else did secular stuff. But Luther and the reformers tore down the sacred secular distinction. The reformers taught that your vocation is your mission field. That's at least one aspect of the work of the ministry that the saints are equipped to do. Work that your pastor obviously cannot do. Harbins, you leave this place each Sunday into dozens of mission fields ripe for the harvest. You don't have to look. They are right there. They're paying you to come into the mission field. So, the flow of the text is this. God's word delivered and established by the apostles and the prophets, taught to the church by evangelists, pastors, and teachers, and then lived out in the people and through the people as they serve one another and spread the word of the gospel. And thus we see... From top to bottom, from beginning to end, the church is saturated with the word of God and it grows. And that's my last point. God gave to Harbins the ministry of the word so that Harbins might do the work of the ministry and thereby grow up. Verse 12, it says that all these gifts were given to equip the saints 
for the work of the ministry. And then it says, for building up the body of Christ. Now, this is true church growth, and it's not about numbers. It's about all about the word of God at work in individual hearts in and through each and every one of us. 1 Peter 2, 2 says, Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Your service, your ministry in the church is designed to mature the church, to build each other up. Christian maturity is a community project. This past week's memory verse, how many of you guys memorized it? Just wondering, how many of you? Just raise your hand if you did it. Okay, not very many hands. Okay, Um, let's see if I can get it. I know Emma Kate has it done. We who are strong have an obligation to bear the failings of the weak. What's the next part, Kate? Not to please ourselves. Okay? Now I can't remember the next verse. Here we go. I didn't do a good job. Let us please his neighbor for his good. And then it says this. What's the last three, four words of that memory verse? To do what? To Build him up. Your ministry is to build each other up. Maturity is a community project. We individually grow and are sanctified, but we are to seek corporate sanctification. Paul's concern in today's text isn't with whether or not individual Christians are maturing, but whether or not the corporate body of Christ is maturing, the local church is maturing. So the question we ask ourselves shouldn't merely be, am I growing in the Lord, but is Harbin's growing in the Lord? That's, do we ask ourselves that question? I think a lot of times we do ask questions, well, am I growing in the Lord, do I see growth? I want you to ask a bigger question. Is this church growing in the Lord? And if not, what do I need to do to facilitate that, to help that, to feed that? Our concern is for the body, not just us. The Christian who thinks that he is mature in Christ, yet cares little to nothing about the maturity of the body, has fooled himself and is not the spiritual giant he thinks he is, but rather is a babe in the faith. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 12, teaches us to strive to excel in building up the church. That's your mission statement. Strive to excel in building up the church. And so we build up the church through the individual involvement in ministry, ministry equipped by faithful teaching and preaching of the word. God gave to Harbins the ministry of the word so that Harbins might do the work of the ministry and thereby grow up. How? Grow up. Number one. Grow up in her unity regarding the truths of Christ. Verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith. The definite article before the word faith, the faith, means that Paul is not referring to our act of believing, but rather to the truth that we believe in. The faith meaning the corpus of doctrine that we call the gospel of Jesus Christ. The word saturates the church and flows through the members into all sorts of ministry so that we might be gospel-centered in all we do and united in the gospel. 
Our unity grows as we see the gospel more clearly and understand it more fully and understand how it permeates and informs everything we do. My friends, if you think you got the gospel down, you fooled yourself. The gospel is so rich and deep that every day you should be learning about how more and more it applies to your life, how more and more it reveals your sinfulness and God's holiness. And the cross just gets huge and huge and bigger and bigger every single day if you're growing in the gospel. And that's what we want to see in the church, a growth in our understanding of the gospel. I believe Harmons is now more gospel-centered now than it was three years ago. And that's a good thing. And I'm hoping three years from now to be even more gospel-centered. Verse 4 of this chapter 4 says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all. So God gave to harvest the ministry of the word so the harvest might do the work of the ministry and thereby grow up, grow up in her unity regarding the truths of Christ. And then number two, grow up in the intimacy of her relationship with Christ. Verse 13 again, until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. The knowledge here isn't talking about head knowledge. Rather, it's an increase of intimacy with our Lord. Corporately, as the word saturates our church and flows out of our members into a myriad of unique ministries, we love Christ more and more and more. He becomes more precious to us. He becomes a greater treasure for us. And so we treasure Christ and his word together corporately. Together we learn how to lose our lives for his sake so that we might gain life. Together we learn how to go, go hard after Jesus, thirsting and hungering for him and finding fullness of joy in him. John 15, 11, one of my favorite verses says this, these things I have spoken to you. This is Jesus speaking. What has he spoken? His word, his gospel. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So together through the ministry of the word that flows to and then through the members we turn each other away from empty cisterns and turn each other toward the living word, the living water that is Christ. So God gave to Harbin's the ministry of the word so that Harbin's might do the work of the ministry and thereby grow up, number one, in her unity regarding the truths of Christ, number two, in her intimacy of, Christ, of her relationship with Christ, and finally, in her maturity as she reflects Christ. In her maturity as she reflects Christ. Let's walk through these last verses here. We're going to go quick. Again, verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, and here's the third thing, to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's the goal. Maturity marked by experiencing the fullness of Christ as all of our life comes under the rule of Christ. And so we see the fruit of our maturity in, first of all, what doesn't happen. Look at verse 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So that's what doesn't happen if you're mature in the word. And then we mature in what does happen. We see the fruit of it in what does happen, verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined together and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. Now that's talking about all the people. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. There's so much more we could say about this passage. So much more that's taught in these final verses, but not enough time today. Let's just finish by observing here what it says at the end in verse 16. From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. That's the work that the teaching accomplishes. It equips the church. And notice the equipping of the saints is like joints 
that holds the body together so that it works properly. And it says, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up. Builds itself up. The church builds itself up in love. Grow. Church growth. I have been in churches of literally thousands of people where there was no church growth, even though there were hundreds of people joining. But there was no church growth. I've been in churches that are small where you see massive church growth. So Harbin's, this is God's blueprint. And we will try, by God's grace, to follow it. How does all this flesh out practically? Well, at our next quarterly meeting, this is for Harbin's members, at our next quarterly meeting, I'm going to lay out how I think this plays out practically with our different ministries here at Harbin's. How we run our ministries through this grid of pastors, teachers, and evangelists teaching authoritative words, members ministering as a result of being fed well, and the church growing in ways that has very little to do with numbers. Gospel. That's what it's all about. Gospel growth in us. If you're here this morning, you're not a member of Harbin's. Maybe you're not a believer. You've never placed your hope and your faith in Christ. Everything I've probably said to you today just sounds like Greek. What? The only way you can be part of something as glorious as this body that's being spoken of here is to be brought into Christ by placing your faith in Christ. And so I have my charge for you this morning is simply that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. He came to this world, he robed himself in flesh to save rebels, those who were running against God, who were fighting against God. And he robed himself in flesh, descended into this earth, was fully man, 100% man, yet still fully God. And he took upon himself the wrath, the anger that God had towards sin, the sin debt that we have incurred. And for his people, he said, I'm going to take their debt on my shoulders and the wrath of God poured out upon the Son of God in unimaginable fury. But also, Jesus said, for those people who are mine, I'm also going to give them something. I'm taking their sin, I'm taking the wrath, but I'm going to give them my righteousness. My full, perfect obedience to you, Father. And so he gave us his righteousness. So we stand before God, two things. Number one, forgiven of our sin. That's been taken care of. But also having credited to us the righteousness we need, the holiness, in order to do exactly what the scripture says. Be holy as your heavenly Father is holy. Apart from Christ, that verse is terrifying and damning. But in Christ, in Christ alone, we are transformed into holy people who are progressively becoming what we already are judicially before God the Father. And that's why we challenge each other to grow and to become more holy. Become who you are, Harbins. And the only way that I know, the only way I've been given authority to help you become who you are, is to preach this word in season and out of season. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now. We ask, Lord, that you would take this time that we have of response where we bring our tithes and offerings, our prayer requests. And Lord, break us free from the formality. Break us free from the, the ritual. Break us free from just the habit of doing this. And let each of us ask ourselves, am I growing in you, Lord? But then let us ask the next question. Is this church growing in you? And how do you want to use me?
to help the body grow. So, Lord, we pray that you do a work in our heart, stir us up to love and good works. We ask all this in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.